Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, and then chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us now. Uh, through it, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see uh, what you would have to speak to our church today. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, you can learn a lot about what a Christian denomination is all about uh, just by their name. Uh, frequently the case anyways. Baptists, guess what they're really into? Really into baptism. <laughs> they love talking about baptism. Pentecostals. Pentecostals, they love the day of Pentecost from Acts chapter 1. Love talking about the Spirit's ongoing work. Lutherans and Wesleyans, they're named after their founders, Martin Luther and John and Charles Wesley, respectively. Anglicans, I don't know if you knew this, Anglican is just an older way of saying English. They love England. They love all things English. They're Anglophiles. What about Presbyterians? That's who we are. <laughs> what is our name Tell us about us. Well, the name Presbyterian, it comes from a Greek word, uh, presbyteros, which is found in our text this morning. If you look down at verse 5, Paul writes to Titus in verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, to appoint presbyteros in every town. He's writing to Titus to tell him he needs to establish elders, leaders, pastors, uh, and this is always in the plural. The expectation is that Titus is going to appoint several elders for each of the churches on Crete. Our text this morning shows that in order for the church of Jesus Christ to grow up, for it to grow out in any place that it finds itself, in any time, it must grow godly presbyteros, godly elders. Let me say it again. To grow up and out as a church, the church needs godly elders. In the Bible, uh, the presbyteros of a church, its elders, they hold a God-appointed office, something that wasn't just the church's idea, but it was God's idea. Elders are called and qualified men who both teach and exercise authority in the church for its health and to further its mission. There are actually a variety of words that are used in the Bible to describe uh, this same office in the church, often using them uh, interchangeably. There's words like elders or pastors or overseers. And each of these titles, they explain a different aspect of this same office of elder. If you look down to verse 7 of our text, 
You see that Paul, he's still talking about elders, but he uses a different word. He calls them overseers. Uh, an overseer must be. He's still talking about elders. In the Greek, uh, that word for overseer is episkopos. Uh, in the King James Version of the Bible, it translates it as bishop. And at some point in church history, it became very common for churches to appoint people to oversee not just churches as pastors, but to oversee pastors, to oversee uh, regional churches. And so the bishops, as they are commonly known today, they are overseers of, of regions, of many churches. So the American Anglican Church is actually called the Episcopalian Church because they, like the Roman Church and some other Christian denominations, uh, they, they have a hierarchical form of government where you start with the elders kind of in local churches who answer to the bishops, who answer to the archbishops, and then somewhere at the top, you know, within the Roman Church anyways, there, there's the head of the church, the Pope. Presbyterians, on the other hand, we believe that texts like this show that there's actually only one office for teaching and exercising authority in the church, and that is the elders of the church. We have no head elder in the Presbyterian Church in North America, our, our denomination. We believe that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And he's commanded in his word that elders be appointed. They're to care for his sheep as pastors. They're to have oversight over churches as overseers. And we're not free to just kind of change that structure as we see fit. Again, to grow up and to grow out, the church needs godly elders. Uh, but before, before we get to the, the body of the sermon, this is actually this is a two or three sermon Sunday. This is what we're doing today. Get ready for it, okay? Uh, I want to actually clear the terrain a bit because I think this is, this is important. This is kind of our first sermon where we're talking about elders. We're, we're a new church, and so I'm the only pastor. I'm the only elder at this church. But I think there's actually some bigger questions uh, about elders in the church that have brought some conflict into the church in recent years, uh, in some cases rightfully so. And, and these would be two questions. The first would be, can women become elders? Can women become elders? And the second is, what do we do about abusive elders? What do we do about abusive elders, those who abuse that call? Let's answer the first question. Can women become elders? First, let me just give you a, a survey of the biblical data. Uh, there, are, there are no examples in the Bible of women being elders, pastors, or overseers. That's, that's just what we see in the scriptures. No examples of this. Those who are called to teach and have authority in the church, whether that was, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, priests or the high priests, uh, the apostles of Jesus, his disciples in the new, uh, or, the, or the elders that were appointed in Jesus' growing church in the book of Acts, they were, without exception, always called and qualified men. Not only are there no examples of women being elders in the church, but in the New Testament there are explicit prohibitions against women holding the office of elder. So simply in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, this isn't quiet in an absolute sense of the word. We had, we had uh, somebody read from the Bible this morning and speak in our church who, who wasn't a man. And it's very clear from the Bible that Paul instructs women to be vocal in worship services. Uh, we'll see in a moment that women, uh, that the Bible is filled with examples of women exercising an incredible variety of responsibilities in the church, which requires them to use their gifts, requires them to use their voice. But what Paul is writing here is that they are to remain quiet as it pertains to rule and authority and teaching within the church. 
There, there are negative prohibitions against women being called to be elders, like in 1 Timothy 2, but there are also positive prescriptions for who these called and qualified elders are to be. And one of the many qualifications, not the only qualification, but one of them is that they're a man, that they're the husband of one wife, a godly father to his kids. Look at the qualifications. If you look down at verse 6 in our text, among lots of other things, not, not just being a man, among lots of other things, an elder is to be the husband of one wife. Now, this, this is a big question in the church, often a very personal one, an emotional one. Uh, and so I'm actually going to post a long-form response to this particular question on Slack. If this is of interest to you, I'd encourage you to read it, to think about it. I would love to, to talk to you about it. Um, but this needs to be said. I think this sometimes is not said as much from the church, and it needs to be. Throughout history, throughout the pages of the Bibles, the Bibles, the Bible, women have taken extraordinary leadership and shown incredible courage for the cause of Christ and the good of his people. Jesus' church has always been filled with women of extraordinary faith, gifting, and influence. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there are too many praiseworthy women to count. Prophets, queens, mothers, leaders, the most courageous and committed of Jesus' followers in the Gospels were women. When Jesus' uh, Jesus's male disciples fled at his crucifixion, the women stayed. The first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection were the women disciples. They were the first to spread the good news about Jesus' resurrection. In Paul's letters, he is just overflowing with praise for the many, many women who co-labored with him in the gospel. In Romans chapter 16 alone, just one chapter, he mentions the women Phoebe, Prisca, Mary, Junia, Tryphena, Tryphosa, uh, the mother of Rufus, who Paul said was like a mother to him, and Julia. And Paul, Paul's language for these women is overflowing in praise. He describes them as servants of the church, those who risk their necks for his life. And while it's a little uh, controversial or obscure linguistically, Paul seems to be using the non-technical meaning of apostle, which, which means messenger or sent one, in describing Junia and her husband, that they're distinct, they're unique, they're outstanding among the sent ones, the apostles. And yet despite the invaluable role of women that they have had and they do have in the growth and establishment of the kingdom in the church. The Bible, by example, by explicit prohibition, and by positive prescription, forbids women from the office of elder in the local church. Now, this very clearly has nothing to do with competency or with ability or with intelligence. I, I saw a husband smile and laugh as soon as I said that because... It's quite obvious that aptness to teach uh, has nothing to do with, with women not being qualified. It clearly has nothing to do with being made less in the image and likeness of God, which is very clear in the scriptures. It wasn't then and it isn't now, but because Jesus is the head of the church, we believe that he still speaks by what he spoke. Uh, we answer uh, to this difficult question that God has spoken in his word, that women and most men are not to be elders in the church and that he's trustworthy to lead his church. So that's the first difficult question. What about the second? What do we do about abusive elders? What do we do about abusive elders? This, again, is an enormous question. I'm happy to talk more about it if you'd like. I think it's important. We have to see that the strongest words in the Bible are not directed against uh, miscellaneous sinners, you know, people who aren't in the church. The fiercest words in the Bible the most damning judgment 
is for spiritual leaders who harm and abuse the people they're called to care for. That is target number one for God is abuse of elders. In his earthly ministry, there was one group that Jesus opposed most frequently, and that was the religious leaders in Israel. They were people who held official, uh, prestigious positions of teaching and authority in the church. They were duly elected to their roles, and yet they used that role to lay heavy loads on the backs of their people. They held to their own traditions over God's words, and in the end, they, they arrested and crucified Jesus himself. It's hard to describe, again, how strongly Jesus speaks against such people. He says it's, it's better for such a person to have a millstone hung around their neck and then to be tossed into the sea than that they should cause one of Jesus' precious lambs to sin. The Bible has no illusions that people in spiritual authority, elders, pastors, overseers in the church are incapable of sin. They are, they are absolutely capable of horrendous and abusive sin. And so in the Bible, God actually instructs us how to deal with such abuse, justly and publicly. In 1 Timothy 5, two chapters after describing how elders can be appointed, Paul describes how elders can and should be removed from being elders if they abuse their authority. The church's job is not to cover for the elders of the church if they're unqualified, rather to call them out, to remove them, to purify the church for its good. Based on the abuses that we've seen in the church, I think it's a temptation for many either to abandon the church or abandon the idea of elders or leadership entirely. Let's just work out a new system. This one isn't working. Maybe uh, being an elder is just too much power, too much authority for any human to handle. So let's you know, democratize the church. Let's just avoid any chance for abuse. But we can't do that because Jesus is the head of the church and not us. He teaches us in his word that to grow up And to grow out, the church needs godly elders. In our text this morning, which we will now finally get to, in many ways serves as a preventative measure against abuse and harm. Uh, It's not an absolute measure, but it is a God-ordained upstream standard to help churches know best who is called and qualified to be an elder. This is God caring for his sheep and showing how we should select pastors. This is not a roll of the dice for us. Churches can be confident of the men they're calling to be their overseers if they meet the qualifications that Paul lays out in Titus. And if you look at our text, there are two uh, groups of qualifications required of godly elders. Family qualifications and personal qualifications. Family qualifications and personal qualifications. Let's look at family qualifications first. Paul tells Titus that uh, the churches that are, are, are spreading out in the various towns throughout Crete, they actually need godly elders appointed to them. Uh, but that he's not just looking for anyone, right? He's not just looking for men, period. <laughs> anyone with an XY chromosome, hey, why not you? No, if you look at verse 6, qualified elders are to be above reproach. Above reproach. He bookends this in verses 6 through 7, repeating that. They are to be above reproach. To be above reproach means to be without blame, to be unchargeable. Not that you are perfect, obviously, or incapable of sin, therefore we would have no elders anywhere, but rather somebody whose reputation is unblemished. Uh, They're not known or notorious for their sin. Rather, they're known and notorious for good character, for good conduct. Not a perfect man, but a godly elder is one who is an exemplary man. And here, first, Paul says he must be exemplary within his family. Look at verse 6. We can judge if a man's qualified to be an elder 
by his relationship with his wife and his kids. In verse 6, Paul says that, uh, that the man who uh, is called to be uh, an elder, he must be the husband of one wife. And literally, this is, he must be a one-woman man. Must be a one-woman man. The men of Crete, uh, the place where Titus was, was establishing churches, like many ancient Roman uh, areas, they, they were, the men were not known for being faithful in their marriages. They, they were not defined as one-woman men but men who would use a variety of women to meet their ver- a variety of desires. But Paul calls for elders to be singularly devoted to their wives. Certainly this would disqualify men with multiple wives. Polygamy was not uncommon then. And it would certainly disqualify men who had you know, mistresses or frequented brothels. But also it would disqualify men who did not love and serve their wives as they were called by God to do. Qualified men are committed men who in their marriages demonstrate a character of devotion and service to their wives. Growing in such service and devotion and love for their wives will serve them well in their calling as elders, which is a ministry of service. The next family qualification, if you look at it, is the elder's children. Look at verse 6. Paul wants Titus to see if the man's children are believers and not open to the charge of being debaucherous or insubordinate insubordinate. We don't use these words very often. Um, uh, This isn't describing just kind of like uh, human sinfulness and childish immaturity. I don't want you to look at my son Knox eating his third cookie and he's being debaucherous. That's not exactly what it's meaning. This referring to like ongoing, undealt with, open and defiant rebellion. Uh, The word that Paul's using there for believers, sorry to pick on Knox there, but any of our kids. It's not referring to immaturity, but a different category of sin altogether. Um, the word for believers that Paul is using there is the same word that's often used for faithful or trustworthy. So this certainly means that children are learning to be obedient to their father's and mother's instruction, but it also carries the meaning of, that the word normally carries, which is that they're believers, that they believe the Christian faith. Uh, they're not living in open rebellion to Jesus, but they believe the good news that their fathers and mothers have discipled them and brought them up in the Lord. Now, at first glance, this actually might seem like an odd requirement to have, because after all, isn't it the man that's being considered to be an elder and not his children? But if, if you look at Paul's explanation for this, if you look at verse 7, you know, why, why are family qualifications so important? This is what he writes, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. The word steward there, it means a manager of a household, Elders are those called to be God's stewards, that is, God's household managers. They are entrusted uh, to run things in God's house, in the church. Paul states the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is another list of pastoral qualifications. In chapter 3, he says, An elder must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so the logic is actually very simple. We can judge someone's future faithfulness in leading God's house by looking carefully at how they lead their own house. How he disciples his kids in his home show what he'll be like discipling God's children in God's home. If a man won't or can't, you know, rebuke or comfort or forgive or restore his own kids, he really has no, there's no place for him to try to do so in God's house. 
And here's something that you need to lock in your mind when we're thinking about elders and appointing elders in a church like ours. Notice the first qualification that Paul tells the church to watch for when choosing elders is family qualifications and not a seminary degree. Family qualifications, not a charming personality and a winning smile. Family qualifications, not pastoral warmth and the ability to show care and give counsel. Family qualifications, not even the ability to wow people with preaching and teaching. According to God, the home, the home is the testing and training ground for Christian leaders. The way a man leads, disciples, uh, cares for his wife and kids is perhaps the most important means of knowing if he's qualified to lead the church in any way. We often are impressed by external gifting, by people's abilities, by their reputation. Uh, the evangelist George Whitfield, he was once asked if he thought a young and talented minister that was kind of growing up, uh, going up in the rankings for evangelists, I guess they had rankings then, uh, and, and asked him, is he, is he a good man? Is he a good pastor? And Whitfield responded, I don't know. I've never seen him at home. To grow up and to grow out, the church needs godly elders, and one of the most important qualifications is family qualifications, how he loves and leads his wife and kids. Uh, implications of that qualification, they might have just raised a whole bunch more questions in your mind. <laughs> so I'm going to post, again, another article on Slack, which you're welcome to read, to think about. I would be happy to talk to you about it, but I think this is a, a big issue, and, and it's something that, if you're interested in, I really want to talk about more. We're working through it. We're at part two <laughs> of, our, of our sermon this morning, which is um, we need elders who not only meet family qualifications, but also personal qualifications. And these can be divided into both character and courage. Uh, first character, okay? Starting halfway through verse 7, if you look at our text, Paul lists five character vices and seven character virtues that elders must alternately put off or put on. These, this, this isn't an exhaustive list, okay? Uh, there are other vices and virtues, but these are representative. They are, they are minimum requirements, not you know, total, absolute requirements for elders. In Crete, uh, many of these negative character qualities or vices were actually sort of badges of honor for men. If you've seen a Bud Light commercial, you kind of get the idea of the type of men that Cretan society was proud to produce, right? Drunk, lazy, stupid. And God's elders were called to, to, to not be that. God's building a different kind of kingdom. He's building a different kind of culture within his church. The church's leaders must not look like the kingdoms and cultures outside of the church. Elders are, are to be free from personal vices, of course. But to be above reproach, of course, means also that they are exemplary men. And so Paul lists seven virtues, starting in verse 8. They must be hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. They, they must show positively um, um, godly characteristics. Of course, uh, all Christian, all Christian, all men, all women, uh, we're, we're called to put off these five vices and put on these seven virtues. That goes without saying. But to be an elder in the church, to be given spiritual authority to lead and to teach, you must be exemplary in them. You have to have an example that's worth following in the church. Uh, men of Christ Church, listen to me. Some of you here are called or will be called in the future to be an elder of Christ Church Halifax in the years to come to, to serve with me, other elders that might be around, in teaching and leading the church. 
And so it's essential that now you're becoming whom you're called to be. The church today in the West, I'm sure throughout the world, is filled with elders and pastors whose marriages are a mess, whose children are wayward, whose character looks just like the world, and who harbor secret sin. And that's tragic. It's, it's utterly disobedient to God's word. It harms the church. Listen, we, we, we don't need gifted men without character. We need your godliness. We need you to step up. The church needs it. Halifax needs it. Of course, uh, you need godly character, right? Just, just to serve and to please God and to care for your families. But, but so do we. For our church to mature and to grow, we need you to step up. To grow up and out, the church needs godly elders. Those who meet family qualifications meet personal qualifications, both character and courage. Uh, and that's what we'll look at now. Look at verse 9. Finally, we get to the pastor's Bible knowledge and their theology. Again, it is listed, so it's important, but it's not sufficient. It's essential, but again, not sufficient. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Elders must know the Bible well. They must believe it. But they also have to have the courage, the spine, to proclaim it to both encourage and to correct. Something that, uh, not Paul, <laughs> Ben is going to preach about uh, next week as, as we look at the next section in Titus. So I actually want to end here then. Uh, here's an application for you. Please pray for me. That song in my mind, somebody pray for me. <laughs> Please pray for my wife. Pray for my kids. Please pray for their faith. Pray for my holiness. Pray for my character and for my courage. Pray for the men of this church that they would grow and mature in this way. We would have a healthy crop of qualified and called men to choose to call to serve alongside me. If you've been around our family long enough, you know that we, we take raising our kids in the faith seriously, that we, you know, we've pushed many of you guys um, to do the same, to, to uh, commit to Christian education, to have family worship with them regularly, to walk with them in Christ. And what I'm hoping as you're seeing in, in texts like this in Titus, it's not just like a quirk of ours, but a consequence of passages like this. In order for me to be qualified in the church as a man, uh, I have to be qualified in the home. In order to lead the church, I have to be leading my home. And so, and so this is a prayer not only for me, but for all of us. Again, please pray for all of the men of Christ Church. Pray that God prepares godly elders for us. This is everybody's work. Men, women, and children, this is everyone's work to support and encourage and pray for elders. To grow up as a church, we need godly elders. But we also need godly elders to grow out. In Titus chapter 2, which is a verse that we'll be returning to over and over again, it's kind of a, a central hub to all the thinking in Titus. We hear the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ has come to bring salvation. Our hope is not in elders. Your hope is not in me being called and qualified. But in verse 13, your hope is to be in the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ gave himself for the church. On the cross so that the church could have life. Christ offers himself to anyone who would come. He will lead you and he will care for you. Christ is the great elder, the great shepherd of the sheep who will never fail you, who will never mess up, who will never make errors. He loves you and he serves his family and he is consistent with that. 
And for this gospel message, this good news that the church has to give to many in our city who are hurting and suffering, to bring more people into Christ, the head of his, the head of his church in verse uh, 14, he gave himself for us, but he did so for this purpose, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ has given himself to the church so that the church can grow up and so the church can grow out. Now may God continue in us the work that he started and grow our church by giving us elders. May God grow us out as a church through the good news of Jesus Christ and with the good news of Jesus. And may you find hope in knowing that your shepherd, your elder, Jesus, has given his life for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for being our shepherd. Lord, we, we want to grow in faith and obedience to your word. Uh, even when this word is hard, when it challenges us, when it stretches us. We thank you that this is good news to us. It's good news to our church. It's good news to Halifax. That you are at work now, uh, growing your church establishing leaders uh, who will bring this good news of Jesus Christ out further and further. So Lord, uh, bless us, bless Christ Church, bless the churches and the pastors in this city. Uh, may your kingdom come. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.